Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Well, sorry, guys. I was going to record this on Friday. I actually did start recording it, and batteries died on me. I was in the office. uh, My voice was pretty wrecked anyhow because I just got back from Europe. So let's try it again. Hello and welcome, my friends. I understand we got mentioned in Outdoor Magazine, or their website, anyhow. And I've been noticing a big uptick in new subscriptions. Well, actually, that's a big fat lie. I don't pay any attention to downloads or subscriptions. First, because, well, I don't have time, and I've been doing this podcast for over five years, and you may be new to it, but it's like an old friend to me at this point. An old friend who's a bit shrewish and scolds me to do some creative work every couple of weeks. If you're new to our tribe, welcome. My name is Chris. I'm an avatar. I'm an endurance athlete with a particular addiction to marathons, but have dabbled in triathlons, ultra-running, mountain bike ultras, and any other stupid-sounding endurance event that crosses my path. Behind that avatar is a business executive, a dad, a husband, a creative, an entrepreneur, and a guy who is as neurotic and self-absorbed as every other misguided meat sack on this planet, but for the most part, I try to keep that laundry to myself. When I was running cross-country in the late 70s in prep school, there was one local sports hero that was constantly in the news. He was a local guy from Connecticut, but we adopted him, and we called him Boston Billy. And he was a likable guy that proceeded to break every marathon record while dominating Boston and New York and Fukoku. And it was a different time. It was the end of an era. It was a time of amateurs. They did it for their own reasons. Because there was no money in it. And this week, I have the great pleasure to bring to you my conversation with a personal hero of mine, Bill Rogers. And I hope you enjoy this chat as much as I did. In section one, I'm going to introduce you to the game of egg toss very interesting egg toss. In section two, we're going to discuss ways to stay mentally in the race when it gets tough. I'm on the back end of a couple of weeks of active international business travel, and my fitness has suffered a bit, but it was good to take a break, and I ran this morning, uh, this being Saturday, and I did 20 miles in the 14-degree Fahrenheit weather, and I felt great. <laughs> I really did. I didn't have any power failure at all at the end, and uh, it was it was good to go out. I didn't I didn't pay any. Oh, there's my dog. I didn't pay any attention to the heart rate monitor. I just went out and ran by feel, which is you know that's what I do. Stop walking around and clicking your toenails on the on the floor. I'm not talking to you. Yeah, you're a good boy. Go lay down someplace. Good boy. I was scheduled to run the Tecumseh Trail Marathon last weekend for my December marathon. It was a Saturday race. I I had a plan. I was going to connect back through Indianapolis on my way back from a business meeting in Toronto. I was going to catch a couple hours of sleep with my sisters who live in Indianapolis, and then they were going to drive me down to the race. Then I was going to stay with them for Saturday, Fly back on Sunday. Sounded like a good plan, not too outrageous. I was actually looking forward to running on the trails and just having a nice, easy, long run in the woods. But then things, as they do, started going crazy. So to get ready for this trail marathon, I began, after the Fort Myers debacle, to do all my runs in the woods. And these were easy zone two runs of like an hour and a half plus, and then some long runs on the weekend. And the weekend before, two weekends ago, I ran uh, two hours and 40 minutes in the trails with Buddy. And we were both pretty beat up by it. And as I did my fartlek run on Tuesday, 
on the roads before getting on a plane, I noticed that my ankle was really sore. And apparently I tweaked it on the long run in the trails, and it feels like I got a minor sprain of some sort. It was a little swollen and hurt to walk on it. And meanwhile, I had another trip fall onto my schedule, this one for Europe for the week. And the only timing that worked is was if I left Sunday night. So now my schedule is Toronto, trail marathon, fly home, grab a fresh change of clothes, jump back on a plane to Europe. Starting to get a little dicey. As the week progressed, this adventure schedule was starting to stress me out. And I'm figuring it's only an easy trail run. No problem. I can tape the ankle. It'll be fine. And then the weather reports started coming in. By Thursday, the forecast for the race was for a winter storm with many inches of snow and ice. Now, I'm really having a crisis of confidence. Four plus hours on a dry trail? Yeah, that's okay. But slipping and sliding around on a bad ankle in eight inches of snow and ice? I mean, yeah, I know I could do it, but would my ankle be shredded? And would I be able to get done? Like, what would it take me, like six, eight hours? Finally... Friday morning, as the weather reports started cascading in, in their awfulness, flights being canceled, the roads being closed, my sisters were sending me worried messages, and I thought, this is crazy. So I called Delta and got my flights changed back to Boston Friday night and sent a note to the race director that I could not, in good conscience, do the race on a sprained ankle in these conditions. And about an hour later, I get the email from the race director that the race has been canceled due to unsafe conditions. <laughs> Sheesh. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Well, my friends, let's talk about politics and the game of egg toss. I want to talk about how to play politics proactively. Politics in the office or in the social environment, is a game of power. You can say that you don't engage in politics, but that's like saying you won't play egg toss. If I want to play egg toss, you have to play egg toss. Otherwise, you will be covered with broken eggs. Now, don't get me wrong. There are no politics in my company or any of the social organizations that I'm involved in. Never has been, never will. This is all purely hypothetical for your benefit. So let's have some fun with it, shall we? It doesn't matter whether it's a big company, a small company, a school, a social club, a tribe. There will always be power dynamics. And sometimes the smaller the organization, the more personal and nasty the politics get. I think... This may be because the players in smaller organizations are unskilled in politics and default to less subtle attack strategies. The best choice is to avoid politics altogether. And the best way to avoid them, in my experience, is to assume an air of abundance and maybe even indifference. Politics manifests where there is a culture of scarcity. When the overwhelming sentiment in the organization is that there isn't enough to go around, humans will start to compete. They will compete for power, for resources, for recognition. Politics is the mechanism that they will use to get theirs by taking yours. Even if you have to operate in an organization that has a culture of scarcity, you can rise above it by assuming an attitude of abundance. When your peers begin to gossip, which, by the way, is the Esperanto of scarcity, refuse to commiserate. Take the high road. Assume an attitude of abundance. It will make you bulletproof. But unfortunately, it is a game of egg toss. Even if you are bulletproof, you can be maneuvered into bad political situations by those who are playing the game. They will see your attitude of abundance as a competitive threat. The way you can be cornered is by allowing someone else to define a moment of truth for you. When you are caught unawares by that meeting or conference call, when your boss calls you on the carpet for some task that is not in your sweet spot, those are the type of bad moments of truth. And these were potentially engineered for you by someone else through politics and influence. So why would someone do this? Because 
By setting you up to struggle in response to these moments of truth, they are reducing your power. They are draining your resources and misdirecting your efforts into a reactive mode. You become less of a threat. You are under control. It's like they are felling trees to block your road and impede your progress. So what can you do about it? Well, obviously, you can try to figure out where the next tree is going to fall so you can get a jump on the next negative moment of truth and prepare for it. And in this way, you can influence control, but you're still reacting. The best way to play egg toss is to be the one tossing the eggs. The best thing for you and the organization is for you to be in a position to leverage your strengths for maximum impact. You need to create your own moments of truth. You need to consistently put yourself in high-value situations that play to your strengths. What exactly am I talking about? I'm talking about proactively doing things that you are good at. Don't wait to be told. You should know what your strengths are. These are things you do well. Are you a strategic thinker? Are you a good communicator? Are you a powerful analytic? Know your strengths and find ways to create your own moments of truth. The trick is that most of the high-value things that you can do in the organization are not going to be urgent. They may be outside your direct responsibility and above your pay grade. You're going to have to step out of your day-to-day tasks to find these moments of truth. If they were part of your day-to-day tasks, you would already be doing them. They'd be expected, and by being expected, they would lose their value as moments of truth. An example would be, if you are, let's say, a good communicator, you might consider writing a white paper or designing a presentation to address one of the key challenges of your market or your organization. Without asking, this will put you in the spotlight and define you as an expert and a proactive thinker. You've created your own moment of truth. To get an understanding of this, you need to list your strengths and start to come up with the things that you can do to create positive moments of truth in your job, in your life, in your organizations, Engineer the agenda so that you are the one stepping in to catch the ball before they even know it has dropped. Create a constant flow of these events out into the future and align them with your life goals, and that is your moment of truth. That's how you break out of the political traps. You use your strengths to proactively change the future agenda to create positive moments of truth for you. Now, going back to the politics topic... I don't consider this to be negative or Machiavellian behavior. Your intent is not to make other people look bad. Your intent is not to take power from others. Your intent is to maximize your own impact on the organization by leveraging your strengths in a positive and proactive manner. It's okay if you do it with the right intent. You could use this knowledge to create negative moments of truths for others, but I know you, you're a good person, and you won't do that, right? If you abdicate the agenda to others, you will be on the receiving end of a game of egg toss that you can't win. If you take charge of it, you won't be there when the egg gets tossed. And now for today's featured interview. Bill Rogers. Yes, how are you, Chris? I'm, I'm doing well, all things considered. I'm still above right. ground. And yourself? Okay. I'm fine, fine. Injury-free, and that's the way I always look at things, you know. So you have you been struggling with a lot of injuries? I know you've battled some, uh, you know, some, some really challenging stuff over the last few years. Are you, uh, have you been injury-free and running well for a while now? Yeah, I've actually been pretty injury-free most of my career. I was very lucky, especially when I was younger, not to have an injury lasting longer than maybe three days, you know? And I would get minor cases of Achilles tendonitis or something. But when I turned 40, I was hit with a case of plantar fasciitis. That's a tricky injury, and I didn't know so much about how to get rid of it, you know? But no, but everything else is going fine. Well, the one the one time you and I ran together, and I'm sure you don't remember, we ran the Hyannis uh, um, Marathon. You were running the half because you had just come off a broken leg. 
Yes, I broke my and, leg about 10 years ago. Yeah, it was about 10 years ago, and I was running along, and you pulled up beside me, and I I did a uh, sort of a double take and said, that's Bill Rogers. So <laughs> that's the only time, only time you and I can run together is when you have a broken leg. <laughs> Hopefully that's the last time. In fact, I was so shocked when I broke my leg on a run because I had never had a broken bone in my life, and I couldn't figure out why I broke my leg. I later sort of deduced that I had been fighting a stress fracture. There had been pain in my right tibia. But then I read how Dina Castor broke her toe in the Olympic marathon in Beijing. And she determined it was from low vitamin D from using sunscreen to avoid skin cancer. And I do the same thing. So I found out I was low in vitamin D. And vitamin D affects your bone strength, you know. Maybe it was that. Yeah. And maybe that I've run so many miles in my life. I'm not sure. Yeah, it could be just one of those things, right? So there may actually be some people out there in the world who don't know who you are, Bill, but I'm certainly not one of them. I grew up in the 1970s in Massachusetts. So when I was in high school, you were winning Boston, you were winning New York, you were winning Fukuoka. And uh, so when you when you give people just a, a, you know, the couple hundred word overview of uh, who you are and what you've done. You know, I... <clears throat> I've actually got a book out now, Chris, called Marathon Man. But when I began my running, I was not a marathon marathoner at all. I was 15 years old. I ran with my brother Charlie and our good friend Jason Akio in Newington, Connecticut, just outside of Hartford. I became a marathoner after a few years later. I had quit running, and we all moved to Boston and saw the Boston Marathon, of course, and watched it for two years, finally joined the YMCA in Boston, and began my running career to become a marathoner. And later, I, I had some, I won some races and had some bad ones, you know. But overall, I was really very interested in the marathon for a long, long time. I still am. Still love to watch the competitions. I was at Philadelphia Marathon and New York City Marathon these last few weeks, and they, they were both great events. Yep. And I actually read your first book. Didn't you have a book back in the eighties? I had a book in 1980 that came yeah. out and. Uh, and it was about marathoning at the time and with the kind of the state of the sport and the things we needed to do to change the sport, to make it more professional and, and reach the wider public. And because at that time in 1980 in America, there were about 30,000 marathoners. And of course, in the intervening, what is it? I don't know how many years, 30 or 40. Now we have about a half a million Americans who run the marathon and so many more who run halves and so forth. But partly I was trying to see that prize money came into the sport. So runners could be respected individually as a, and as athletes and, and the sport more understood, you know? Right. Because when you, you know, you set the world record at Boston, you got a, you got a laurel wreath, right? And a, yeah. maybe a trophy yeah. or something. You guys would win these big races back in the 70s and you get like toaster oven. Yeah, actually, I won a jar of honey once at a road race in Western Massachusetts, and then I won a rocking chair and gardener and a little table, and if the big deal was to win a 10-speed bike or a TV. Those were the days of amateurism, but amateurism made a lot of Olympians and other top athletes pay a heavy cost because they couldn't earn a living, and uh, right. in this and the world was becoming more competitive sports-wise as well. And, and and this is global sport, marathoning and track and fields, you know. It's global. It's not like, let's say, baseball which is or football, which are domestic sports primarily, you know. So, so it's more competitive, really. And I don't think many people think that way, but I've always thought that way. Yeah, and I think I remember you telling one story where you went and ran the New York City Marathon, which was only in its first couple of years back then. That was a new race back then. And yes, they gave you a ticket and towed your car, and you won the race, right, or something <laughs> like that. You're right, Chris. It was the first five-borough New York City Marathon, which in a way was almost the first big city marathon in the world. Boston starting out in Ashland or Hopkinton, Mass., you know, and smaller towns and just a small portion in the big city of Boston. But New York City finally made the move after five years and said, we'll move into the city and let's see if this works. It was kind of a gamble, but it worked. And uh, you're correct. I won the race and they did tow my car, but the New York Roadrunners did 
pay the ticket fee, you know, and I came back to win the race later. And, and the race is now the largest marathon in the world with 50,000 runners and bringing in about $340 million to the city. That's a chunk of money. Yeah, yeah, and I love to have seen that growth of that race. We had to put races into the cities, you know. So when you were running that first five boroughs race, were there any spectators? Um, oh yeah, there were a lot. There were quite a few spectators, of course. New York City, you're cutting through all the five boroughs. You know, the strange thing was the course was slightly changed, and and they didn't want to go down. I think it's First Avenue, and we went down the East River for a while. And so you'd be running along, and some guy would be sleeping on a park bench, and you're running along the river, and then we had to run up some stairs, you know, and then connect. I think onto the Queensboro Bridge and cross over the bridge. Uh, I'm not quite sure. I couldn't remember the course. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know New York City that well. I was relying on the lead car, you know, and uh, yeah. a blue line had been painted on the ground. So just follow that blue line. It was like going to Oz, you know, and yellow <laughs> the road and all. But it was great fun. It was terrific fun. Yeah, that's awesome. And there weren't that many, um, you know, you talk about there only being 30,000 marathoners in the whole sport back in 1980 and now you know i i've lined up this year in races that have had more people in single races that have more people but there weren't that many marathons in the 70s and 80s when you said i'm going to run the marathon people just assumed boston because there was probably what four or five marathons across the country nobody knew anything about marathoning how long was a marathon were they all the same distance one of the problems i think was the boston marathon wasn't that visible in fact, my being from Hartford, Connecticut, my college roommate at Wesleyan University, Andy Burfoot, won the Boston Marathon in 1968. I think he was the only American to win the Boston Marathon that decade. And we had no idea what that meant. We knew it was a famous race, but what was it like? And you have to be at a marathon to get a feeling for it. I suppose it'd be like being in a stadium for a big soccer match or football game, you know, the intensity of it. And uh, it is amazing. Philadelphia had 32,000 runners last weekend. Uh, Marine Corps gets around 25,000. Boston, 25,000. Disney, 25 or more. And New York, 50. And it's not just America. It's like this all over the world. Berlin, London, Beijing, China, Japan, Tokyo. You know, so it's a global sport. And I think TV is starting to get interested in our sport a little because of the growth. Because ESPN covered uh, New York City Marathon a few weeks ago. So then in Boston, back when you were running it, people don't realize that, you know, just how different these races are these days versus, you know, and like you said, it's only 30 years ago where you had to, you know, there, there weren't aid stations and you had to bring your own stuff or get stuff from people in the crowd, right? My roommate, Andy Burford, who took Boston in 68 on a warm spring day, there was no water provided by the Boston Athletic Association. They had no sponsor. So all of us athletes, Greg Meyer of the United States, the last American to win Boston, Mike Roach, 1976 Olympian in the steeplechase, Benji Durden, 1980 Olympian in the marathon, uh, and a slew of others, and we formed an association and put on the first professional road race in America in 1981 out in Portland, Oregon, called the Cascade Runoff, won by Greg Meyer on the inside. And that forced the hand of the American Federation, the group that controlled track and field and marathoning. And at first they tried to suspend a bunch of us, and they finally backed down and said, okay, you can start earning money, you can write a book, or you could earn a little money, but you had to be careful how you spend it. They tried to control the athletes. And so the story is the same in many sports. And fortunately now, uh, athletes have the right to have an agent and freedom to win prize money. And the money's gotten pretty big. It's it's growing, and it and uh, it should, because it's one of the highest level sports in the world, I think. Yep. And uh, so what do you think? If you were to, uh, if you were in your prime, line up against some of these Kenyans, where do you think you'd have a chance with the current training methods and and everything going on? You know, I don't think so. I really think that, uh, you know, almost the entire sport at the top level is being dominated by Kenyans and Ethiopians. You know, the high altitude factor plays a huge role in the sport. Certainly, I would have to move to high altitude, like Frank Shorter, America's Olympic gold medalist, last American man to win gold 
you have to either be born in El Sud or train there. You'd have to train there. Uh, there have been a, a few sea level born athletes who have competed with the top altitude born runners, like Paula Radcliffe from Great Britain. You know, Dina Castor of the United States took the bronze in yeah. the Athens Olympics. Galen Rupp took a silver medal at 10,000 meters, coached by Alberto Salazar, my old Greater Boston Track Club teammate. Uh, you need a great coach. And, and the support of your federation, I think, today. And, uh, but the Kenyans and Ethiopians have a long connection with distance running success. You know, and, and so it's kind of like their baseball is to the U.S. Maybe, maybe track uh, uh, the mile or the 10,000 or the steeplechase is to the Kenyans and Ethiopians, you know. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're amazing. And I, do you think anybody's going to dip under two hours in the next 10 years? I don't see that happening, but then again, I never could have foreseen or never guessed we'd see a 203 marathon, you know. My best time was 209, and I had the American record about six years. Alberto took that down to 208, and um, uh, the record now, I think, is maybe Ryan Hall's 206 at London. I think everything is time-oriented today. Whereas in my era, there was a little more fear of the marathon distance, probably because many marathons were held in the heat. Yeah. That was true of New York City Marathon, in fact, and some other big races, including the Olympics itself, when times were slower. And it's more just strategy. But I think today there's, there's money in the push for fast times, you know. It's kind of like Bannister's quest for the sub-four-minute mile. Can it be done by a human? And most people thought no. And he thought, well, yeah, maybe. So that's how you have to think. You have to you have to go beyond regular thinking. And 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 there's always someone like Alberto Salazar said when he set the American record at New York and the world record. He said, I think I can do it, and and he did. And uh, so so that's our sport. You know, always kind of exploring uh, this territory. Being an Olympic sport, it's different. Yeah, it's funny you mention that because I see the same thing these days where. It used to be the marathon was a strategic race, right? It was where to spend your capital. Who were you racing against? You know, were there hills? Was there heat? And you'd, you'd figure out a strategy and run that race. But now it's, it's more like running the 10K. They're just all out the whole way. Yeah, it's just tremendous because I think the science of exercise or training, physiology, human physiology, how much can we do? You know, how hard can we train? You know, it's not, you don't have a part-time job. Like when I was running, I was a teacher for three years, you know. And then later we opened a running store and a clothing line. Well, that's hard to do when you're trying to be one of the best in the world. But in that era, maybe you can do it. Today, the athletes are full-time. They're living in training camps. It's a kind of almost a monastic kind of life. It's a very hard kind of life, I think. But also, you know, athletes are always aiming high. And the younger generation is always comes on. And it seems to excel past the, those of the past. And that's the nature of sports. But I think some of it is the science of training and the, and the great coaches. In Boston, we had Coach Billy Squires, who I think is still today the best marathon coach. He produced more top marathoners than anyone else has in America. And so that's his, the feather in his cap, you know. And uh, now Alberto Salazar out in Oregon running, uh, you know, on behalf of Nike, coached uh, Galen Rupp, Mo Farah from Great Britain, and many others, uh, such as uh, Kara Goucher, you know, to her yeah. success. So, we, so we, it keeps evolving. We keep producing fine coaches and top athletes. So the U.S. does well, but I would say uh, and we all know that in the marathon, the Kenyans and Ethiopians seem to be the strongest in the world now. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It's uh, it's quite a uh, quite a run they're having, no pun intended. But it'll change. Everything always changes, right? You know, it might, it might not. I suppose. I think more countries will get into the Olympic sports. I think they're going to rise around the world, and a lot of countries that don't have not had the resources to build up their Olympic athletes seem to be doing that more and more as the global economy gets wider and stronger. And, and so I see this happening, and I also see it happening in the U.S., and I hope Olympic sports will get more support from the U.S. Olympic Committee and uh, society-wide because I see this as competition. I see this as there's business competition, but there's also athletic competition, which goes 
kind of alongside, hand in hand. And I always like to see the Americans do well, you know, whether it's cycling yeah. or swimming or rowing or whatever, you know, Olympic yeah. sports. So going back, you said that after college for you, you actually didn't run for a while, right? And you were sort of, you know, sitting on the couch working, trying to stay out of Vietnam, and then you got back into running. So you actually come from from not running back into running, and then you went to these very, you know, high levels of performance. You know, what got you off the couch? You know, I it's, it's absolutely true. I'm a conscientious objector. I was I felt that the move to go to the Vietnam War was a big mistake by our government leadership. I still feel that way and uh, cost the American people and, and others a lot. And uh, I just think that, uh, so, so it's true, that's why I moved to Boston for that job. And, but, of course, I always ran together. You know, like I said in my book, Marathon Man, with my brother, our best friend, Jason. And so you run together with your friends. And if you don't have a friend to get out the door with, you're not going to go. So we all quit. But when I was, we lived in Boston, I, my motorcycle was stolen. I had a motorcycle. That was all I had in the world. It cost me $1,000 I'd borrowed from Jason. I lost that. And then I got fired from my job. I got involved. I wanted to start help start a union there for lower-paid workers and so forth. And uh, they, found a, they found on that at the hospital. <laughs> anyway, uh, I said, suddenly I had time. I said, you know, I ran okay in college, you know. I think I'll get back to my running and aim for Boston. And in the end, I won there. And that was great fun because Charlie was there and Jason was there. It was a sweet victory. Yeah, now I'm starting, I can't remember exactly, but you didn't win on your first try, did you? Did you? No, I dropped out. Yeah, you DNF the first time, and which is not uncommon for people at Boston. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Boston is in, uh, kind of almost infamous for being a, a unique course in, with its rolling hills and the downhill nature, and it costs your body a lot of fatigue and soreness in your legs. And, and it also comes on the edge of spring um, and used to start at 12 noon. They yeah. think, Thankfully, they changed it now to an earlier start, 10 a.m., and um, but most major races, including New York City, have changed their dates for cooler weather. And I don't know if Boston's going to have to do that. They've had a lot of years recently when it was very hot. But you're right. I dropped out of my first marathon. It was one of those warm New England spring days, and I went out too hard. I didn't know how to pace myself. Today they have pacers that will lead you to a specific pace as you run the course, and uh, and there's. Everything has changed, you know. There's also the emphasis on raising dollars for fighting cancer, something I'm 100% supportive of, and and uh, so the sport has become maybe maybe the number one fundraising sport in the United States and in the world. <clears throat> so all this good has we've started to see the marathon in a different way. It, it's not just a race, you know. I, I've always thought it was more than a sport. But it took me a while to learn how to race it. Yeah. Well, I remember when I was reading your first book many, many years ago, and, and one of your pieces of advice struck me. It said, you know, when you get into Newton Hills, drop in some surges to drop your competition. And I'm thinking to myself, whenever I'm in the Newton Hills, I'm just trying to survive. <laughs> I'm not thinking about dropping in surges to drop my competition. You know, I was very lucky being a member of Greater Boston Track Club. We we trained on the course. My brother Charlie and I and Jason, we all opened a running store on the course, 1977 in Chestnut Hill. And uh, that was the first running retail store in Boston area. And uh, uh, so, so it was an advantage to be able to run on the course with your teammates, you know. And we felt any runners who came in might not know the course so well. And that's true. It's a challenge for any first timer. But I also believe I believe it's the, the greatest marathon course in the world. And you know I love the Boston Marathon and and very exciting every year to go down there and and and, and the history of the race and what yeah. what the runners have done at Boston over the decades for 117 years. I just think yeah. it's a spectacular event. It's just pure fun and it's good for the city and. And uh, I think everyone has fun there. Yeah, I feel the same way when I get to, get to go there as well. So uh, so what's the future hold, Bill? Um, you know, I still go to 
what I do to make a living, I've gone to races and do promotional work at runs around the country. And uh, I'm continuing to do that. And I'm going down to a few races in Florida in the colder weather, sometimes to Texas or uh, Louisiana or Florida, California, go to races there and support the sport, meet the new runners. Also, I was going to say, Chris, if anyone is interested in a copy of my book, uh, they could reach us at um, brrc at earthlink.net. And hopefully, you know, I'll be looking forward to going to the Boston Marathon to help rectify what happened to ease the pain. I'll do whatever I can next year's Boston from the Boston Marathon bombings, you know. Marathoning is a sport that brings the world together. Uh, it was a, a fluke, an irony that that bomb went off there. It wasn't an attack on the marathon. It had nothing to do with the marathon, but it was an attack on American people. And and that's what, what it was. But I think marathoning is a, is, a, is a global force for good. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And I'll be there in, in uh, on Patriots Day myself. So we'll look, we'll look forward to it. Do you have any? Uh, um, do you have a website? Is your book available on Amazon or any of the sites? Yes, you can yeah. buy it on Amazon. But if folks wanted a signed copy, they could reach me at brc at earthlink.net. Yes, there, if anyone there... wanted a signed copy, you can buy it a, a bit cheaper on Amazon and probably books. I don't know what you know what bookstores. It would be the same price, you know. Okay. Yeah, but if they buy it from you, you get more money, so that's good. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Plus you get the signed copy. Yes. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, hopefully we'll run across each other someplace out in the woods here. In, uh, yeah. In, uh... All right. And I'll All see right. you at Boston. See you in Boston yeah, in April. Yeah, I hope the we'll winter's see. not too bad, Chris. <laughs> no, I don't mind running in the cold, man. I like it up here. Oh, I do, too. I do, too. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. I'll talk to you soon. Good yeah. interview. Bye-bye. Hey. Bye-bye. Hitch up your tights, because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Let's talk about how to hang tough in the long run. How do you keep from losing it mentally, mentally, at the end of a long run? So I was out training with a buddy of mine in the woods, and with Buddy, a couple of weekends back. And we did a couple hours in the trails, and as always the case, we talked a lot. Running is the great lubricator of loquaciousness. When I run, I start to remember all the things that I have thought about, read, and interacted with during the week, and we have these great conversations. At one point, my friend asked me, how do you keep your head in the race? When you get to that spot, you know that spot, after 18 miles, when it all starts to go south, and when your ego flees the premises and leaves you without hope, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, But at first, I just thought he was making conversation. Then I realized that for many marathoners, this is a critical issue. You do the training. You prepare for the race. The first 18 to 20 miles goes as planned, and then something happens. And it's more than just that physical wall. It's a mental breakdown. Or at least that's what we suspect it is. And I could tell that it bothered him. I think it's because... We can accept the fact that we were undertrained or unfit and the race spanked us because of it, but what the ego struggles with is maybe we were more than just physically weak. Maybe we were psychologically weak, and any potential weakness of character bothers us, and it bothers us more than a hundred physical bonks. We wonder if we couldn't have been tougher. If we couldn't have bared down and gutted it out to save that race. Maybe we were physically strong, but mentally weak. And that scares us. I know it bothers me. The question is, how can we prepare for that moment? What can we do to be ready when the test comes? How do we overcome this physical and mental power failure late in the race? It's a universal question, especially for newer marathoners. Those of us who have run many marathons over many decades don't get wrapped up in it so much because we've worked through it by a process of trial and error. As runners and marathoners, we have heard countless conversations about how to train and race to avoid hitting the wall. 
But we've said less, and we've had less conversation about how to prepare mentally for the test when it comes. So, let's talk about that. First of all, avoidance and denial are inherently bad strategies. Expect it to happen. Don't go into the race without a strategy to deal with the mental challenges that will come. When I go into a marathon, no matter how well I've trained, I know that at some point in the race, it's going to get hard. I know this because I've been there many times. It's going to get physically hard and mentally hard. I have strategies to deal with both the mental and the physical challenges. First of all, it helps if you can be prepared. Similar to physical training, you can address the mental aspects in training as well. Condition your mind to expect the challenge. Number one, practice it in training. You can prepare for the mental and physical letdown moments by designing workouts that simulate the challenge. The type of workouts, the best type of workouts for this is a long step-up run or a long fast finish run where there's, where the point is that you construct a workout where you run to exhaustion and then you push hard. The more you can spend practice time in that discomfort zone, the better you will be able to deal with those challenges, both physically and mentally, in a race. The second thing you can do is you can visualize. Do you know what success looks like? Have you thought about what you're going to do in this race? Visualize the finish line with the clock, with the time you want. Picture yourself striding strong up Heartbreak Hill. Use visuals that promote the mentality that you want to have when it gets hard. In my mind, I bring up these old newsreel photos or footage that I have in my head of Bill Rogers finishing Boston, or Joan Benoit entering the stadium in Los Angeles, or Rosa Moda. See those, those professionals with that light, fast, easy stride of champions. And think about that when you're training. Visualize that. Number three, be in the moment. One of the words that I don't ever use in my life is overwhelmed because I consider that to be a choice. The situation is what it is, especially at the end of a race, but how you deal with it is up to you. Don't ever say or let yourself be overwhelmed. One of the best ways to take the enormity out of the emotions in a race is to focus on the here and now. The finish line may be five miles away, but there's nothing you can do about that. You can only affect the here and now. So make the decision to be present in your body. Reset your focus to the here and now to the next telephone pole. How do you do that? Well, step one is to take a big breath and relax. Be in the moment. Step two is to do a detailed self-assessment. Go through your system. How's your energy? How's your strength? How's your form? How's your hydration? Can you think clearly? When you go through the self-assessment, you'll typically find that things aren't as bad as you thought, and you can make some minor adjustments. So instead of panicking, do the assessment. There have been plenty of times I'll have some strange cramp or pain that will go away as fast as it came for no apparent reason. Step three in this be-in-the-moment process is to fix your form. Heads up, hips forward. Shoulders up, stride light and easy, hands high and light, relax, smile. We've been over this a hundred times. This isn't brain surgery. You fix your form, you start to smile. That will drive your emotions. You can also deploy meditation techniques here as well to calm yourself. Repeat a calming mantra to yourself. Focus on the words. Watch them scroll across the inside of your head. Calm your heart rate. Calm your breathing, relax, clear your mind, get your big brain out of the way, and let your body run. Another thing you can do, the fourth thing that you can do, is you can practice reprogramming your triggers in training. So you know that this mental letdown is coming. Make a decision before the race starts how you are going to react to it. I'll make packs with myself, like no matter what happens, 
I'm not going to walk, or no matter what happens, I'm leaving it all out there. When I hit that mile 18 and it starts to get hard, I'm going to knuckle down and race. But more specifically, when I feel panicky and my mind starts to go negative, I'm going to recognize that trigger. And I'm going to have a strategy to replace the bad reaction with a pre-programmed good reaction. Then when you're in the race and the trigger appears, you can recognize it and you can move it up into your big brain and decide to react to it in a positive way that keeps your mind in the game. And finally, when it gets hard, you can use distraction techniques. At some point, you may be in pain, <laughs> and you may want to stop thinking about it. There are mental tricks you can use, including all the ones we've just talked about. Counting is a great way to engage your mind. So it will stop focusing on the pain and exhaustion. You can count to 100, you can count to 25, you can count backwards from 10. It doesn't matter. You're just distracting your brain. And, and counting's good because it has a nice cadence to it. Some people will sing songs or repeat a distracting phrase like, I think I can. Some people will think about their kids. It's a good idea to have multiple distraction strategies that you can deploy and to practice those in your long training runs. You'll get to the point where you can actually transcend the physical. And you'll hear this, especially in ultra runners, where it gets very, very painful, but eventually they're able to transcend. And there are yogis that can lie on a bed of nails and walk on hot coals. In the same way, you can use the effort and pain of a long race to transcend the moment. And what do I mean by transcend? I mean that you can get to the point where your conscious mind can move outside of the physical discomfort. There have been events where it is an out-of-body experience for me. I am not in my body anymore. I am outside the window looking in. This can only be achieved if you can survive the first few waves of exhaustion. This is much more common with ultra-endurance athletes than, than marathoners. I can visualize myself riding on a magic carpet and being pulled along. I'm not running, I'm floating. And when I look down, there are legs there that are running and even racing, but they're not my legs. This is an advanced state of relaxation. And it's amazing because if you can get there, instead of being in pain and fighting the run, you transcend it. And you will find another zone and sometimes another gear. And it's a blissful state if you can find it. Finishing up. Don't be depressed if you have mental or physical breakdowns in a race. We all do. But take the opportunity to proactively strategize how to overcome these breakdowns. Take time in your training to practice and see what works for you. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a black and white border collie. Episode 2, no, 3-278, in the box like a stale pizza. So what happens now? Well, they did reschedule the Tecumseh Marathon for January, but that doesn't really work for me. So I talked to Coach, and I'm just going to work in a self-supported marathon next weekend on the 22nd. That's a long run. It's part of my training. I'm going to map out a route. I already have, as a matter of fact. First pass, I just went in to map my run, and I dropped a bunch of waypoints, and it came out to 26.23 miles. Bang. I got it done. It circles my hometown of Groton, Mass., and I'll see if I can talk any of my buddies into tagging along for some of it or maybe even all of it. Hey, you're all welcome to come up and run with me, too. It'll be slow and we'll have some fun. Next two races I have locked and loaded are the Waco, Texas Marathon with my buddy Ryan. We're going to have a little adventure. And New Orleans with Eric. And we're going to have a little adventure there, too. And they are on back-to-back -back weekends in January and February. I'll be knuckling down my training quality and volume over the next four weeks to make a go at one or both of these. And even though my body is not responding as well as I had hoped to all these vials, we'll make a go of it. 
I still need a March race, and then in April it is the Boston Marathon and, of course, the Groton Road Race. I managed to have lunch with our friend Alex, who's one of the volunteer editors for the podcast when I was over in Birmingham in the UK this week, and it's always fun to meet people that you've been speaking with for years but have never met. I'm working through my Christmas shopping and looking forward to spending some time on the ground with my buddy and my running club and my family, and and it's all good. I'll survive. I always do, because I try to be present in the moment, no matter what. And enjoy the now, because folks, we only have an infinitesimal sliver of time in this world, and there's no point in wasting it on worry. Let the adventures continue, and I will definitely be seeing you out there. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. You can find it there. And it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff. And let me know if I can help. Ciao.